You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of the Great War episode 225. This week a big thank you goes out to Stephen for the generous donation and for the support on Patreon. Over on Patreon you can get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes, like the series going on right now that covers the naval arms race between the Royal Navy and the German Navy before the First World War began. Last episode, we discussed the events of the Anglo-Irish War, which resulted in a treaty being signed by Irish leaders in the British government led by Lloyd George. This episode, we're going to look at what happened in Ireland after the treaty was signed. To simplify it down as much as possible, after the treaty was brought back to Ireland and was accepted by the Dáil, a provisional government was created. The leaders and members of Sinn Féin would be split on their views of the treaty, with most supporting, but a large minority not supporting the treaty. One, on top of this disagreement, the IRA, the military force of the new Irish government, would mutiny against the leadership of the Dáil due to the Dáil's support of the treaty. The core of the issue between the Puerto Treaty and anti-treaty groups in Ireland was based on the provisions contained within that treaty. In this episode, we're going to discuss the political and philosophical debates surrounding the treaty, and dive into the break between the anti-treaty and pro-treaty groups within Ireland in the lead-up to the June 1922 elections. Then, for the next two episodes, we will follow the course of the Civil War to its conclusion before discussing, just briefly, the aftermath. Kevin O'Higgins, a fixture within the leadership of the Irish Free State until he was assassinated in 1927 by anti-treaty members of the IRA, would say this about the state of Ireland at the time of the Civil War. Quote, to form a just appreciation of developments in Ireland in 1922, it is necessary to remember that the country had come through a revolution and to remember what a weird composite of idealism, neurosis, megalomania, and criminality is apt to be thrown to the surface even in the best regulated revolution. In Ireland in 1922, there was no state and no organized forces. The provisional government was simply eight young men in the city hall, standing amidst the ruins of one administration with the foundation of another not yet laid, and with wild men screaming through the keyhole. 
No police force was functioning throughout the country. No system of justice was operational. The wheels of administration hung idle, battered out of recognition by the class of rival jurisdiction. I think that's a pretty good summation of the situation in Ireland at the time of the treaty debates. The root of all the problems within the new Irish provisional government and between the political and military leaders was the treaty that had been signed in London. It included some clauses that presented Ireland with a level of autonomy that was well above what had been discussed during the Home Rule debates before the First World War. It allowed Ireland almost full fiscal and political autonomy, and was very similar to what the relationship was between the British and Canada in Australia. However, critically, it still contained two clauses that would cause the greatest friction in Ireland, an oath of allegiance to the king in the presence of a British governor-general with wide oversight powers. Of these two clauses, the oath of allegiance was the most important, especially in the context of the civil war that followed. While there were some who had problems with the treaty, I do want to say that the treaty as a whole was incredibly popular in Ireland. This support was not uniform though, and generally there was more support for the treaty in the eastern counties than in the western counties, and generally more support in urban areas. There was also wide-ranging support among various official groups, organizations, unions, and the church. All of these groups were in favor of peace, and that meant that they were in favor of the treaty. Regardless of this support from all corners of Ireland, there was also many who did not support it, and in the treaty debates that followed, it would become clear that for some groups, it did not actually matter what the majority of the Irish people thought. While the two sides of the treaty debate would eventually resort to violence to make their case, at least initially, there was some hopes of a compromise. Over the course of three weeks, the treaty would be debated in the Dáil, and many of these debates would focus on specific parts of the treaty. Now, when looking back after the next several decades of Irish history, it's interesting to note that the presence of the partition in the treaty was not a huge topic for discussion during these weeks, even from those that were vehemently against the treaty. This was mostly due to the assumption that the Border Commission would be able to chip away at the territory given over to Northern Ireland, and if enough of this territory was pulled away, then Northern Ireland would no longer be sustainable. After the weeks of debate, the vote would be just 64 to 57 in favor of the treaty, not exactly a crushing mandate. The Dáil would then elect Griffith, one of the architects of the treaty, as its new president with a vote of 60 to 58. This was a critical shift in the leadership of the Dáil, with de Valera, the previous president, being one of the most outspoken anti-treaty leaders. Even though they had been defeated in the treaty vote, and then in the leadership vote that followed, the anti-treaty leaders refused to acquiesce their position, and instead they dug in harder. As Flory O'Donohue would say later, quote, National unity was broken at the top. No power under heaven could prevent the split from spreading downwards. The result of the treaty debates is that the doll was broken, a fate that in retrospect was almost inevitable. The doll as an institution was a carryover from the earlier revolutionary efforts of those involved. It was created by and for revolutionaries, and this meant that many strong constituencies within Ireland were not represented at all amongst its members. All it took was one strong disagreement for the doll and for Sinn Féin as a party that created it to come toppling down. While the Dáil did not have representatives from all viewpoints, from the perspective of many anti-treaty, soon-to-be rebels, they were betraying Ireland as a whole. This view was most strongly held among the IRA. Now, not every member of the IRA was anti-treaty. There were many who understood how important the treaty was and how poorly the Irish forces had been doing during the Anglo-Irish War before this truce was signed, but these were often higher officers, and it started right at the top with Michael Collins. 
Collins had been sent to London to negotiate the treaty. Due to his position as the leader of the IRA and Collins' support for the treaty was absolutely crucial if it was to be put in place. Just his name alone kept some of the military units on the pro-treaty side, and it kept even more in at least a neutral state. Collins could not convince the majority of IRA men who fell into the anti-treaty camp. Now, the specific reasons that particular members or groups of the IRA fell into the anti-treaty camp were, of course, varied. Some drew issue with the Oath of Allegiance, others refused to acknowledge the partition, believing that they'd fought a war with the English not just for the 26 counties of Southern Ireland, but all 32 counties. Others just viewed the conflict with the British as one that was not yet over, and the fact that the Dáil had negotiated with them was a betrayal of their previous struggle. This last viewpoint was particularly prevalent in the regions where the fighting with the British had been the most violent and deadly. These kinds of dissenting views were held by military members in militaries all over the world, and generally they do not result in an armed revolt. But in this case, the structure of power in Ireland during this period would contribute to the beginning of the Civil War. The Dáil and then later their provisional government had very little real power over the IRA, and the IRA had never seen itself as fully subordinate to the political leaders in Dublin. This resulted in them being far more willing to break with those political leaders, leading to civil war. The Dáil would ratify the treaty in January by that vote that I just discussed, and then they would form the provisional government, which was created to bridge the gap between the Dáil and the official government that would be created under the Constitution once it was ratified. While many of the IRA members would never agree to the treaty, they did not at this point immediately resort to violence or mutiny. There was instead a period of tension, but generally non-violent tension, between the two groups as the Constitutional Committee started in on drafting that Irish Constitution. This period would last for about six months, from January to June 1922. And during this period, the pro-treaty members of the Dáil knew that there were a large number of people who were against the treaty, uh, but both sides still hoped that some sort of compromise could be reached. These attempts would eventually be unsuccessful, and instead the divide would grow wider, and even the pretense of unity would eventually fall apart. In the anti-treaty areas of Ireland, mainly in the western and southern counties, pro-treaty supporters basically had to stop attending IRA and Sinn Féin meetings. And in, in the pro-treaty areas, like Dublin, anti-treaty members had to do the same. This brought the two sides even further apart. During this period, the British leaders mostly stayed out of the situation. They still had a vested interest in the affairs in Ireland, of course, but any actions by the British authorities would have just inflamed the situation. This policy of inaction was made far more difficult by the actions of Collins and other IRA leaders due to their policy. While the disagreements about some of the treaty's contents did not immediately lead to violence in the South, in the North, the violence never really ended. The Northern question, other than the fact that Northern Ireland existed, had mostly been pushed into the future by the treaty due to the presence of the Boundary Commission, which was to decide the specifics. This commission would have the power to adjust the border, but it explicitly did not have the power to change the fact that Northern Ireland existed and would continue to exist within the United Kingdom. This did nothing to solve the biggest problem that would lead to violence in Northern Ireland. The core of the issue was that the Northern leaders believed that the Southern leaders, both pro- and anti-treaty Southern leaders, were trying to destabilize the North. If they could do this, then it was possible that the northern counties would then be folded into the southern counties. To prevent this, the presence and pervasiveness of security forces in the north was increased, especially in and around Belfast. 
As the leaders in Belfast attempted to increase their control, the violence of the Northern IRA increased, and in this violence they were in fact supported by the leaders in the South. They were given men and weapons by the southern counties, and this, when combined with the efforts of the Northern Ireland government to protect its position, resulted in greater violence, both on the border and in Belfast. While the violence on the ground was very real, there were official efforts to try and arrive at an understanding. These efforts would result in two agreements between Collins and Craig, the first one occurring on January 21st, 1922. This first agreement was mostly around the specifics of how the boundary issues would be resolved, and while they would come to an agreement that looked like a compromise, with representatives of both sides agreeing to meet at a later date, at this later date, the meeting in Dublin in February, the first agreement would fall apart. This would then lead to more discussions, resulting in the second Craig Collins Pact on March 30th. This agreement also involved Griffith, O'Higgins, and Churchill. This pact was much more complex and represented the last comprehensive attempt to reconcile the views of the northern majority and the northern minority before, like, the 1960s. Critically, both sides agreed to release some prisoners, and Collins agreed to try and use his authority over the IRA to reduce the violence in the north. While the leaders would leave with this agreement, and the agreement would be officially supported in the north and the south, the results were not what was hoped for. I quite like this explanation from Michael Hopkinson from his book Green Against Green, The Irish Civil War, A History of the Irish Civil War, 1922-1923, on why this second pact would fall apart. Quote, the agreement failed because it concerned itself with effects rather than causes. It did not therefore deal with the partition or the possibility of the Catholic minority recognizing the northern government. End quote. After the second pact was signed, there would be a brief period of peace, but then efforts by southern leaders, specifically Michael Collins, to support the northern IRA increased, and therefore the violence would also escalate. Collins would work with Liam Lynch to arrange for large numbers of weapons to be sent north, and volunteers were organized from southern IRA counties to be sent into the northern counties. This new offensive would not prove to be successful. Unlike in the south, the northern IRA had to try and exist in a territory where large numbers of the population were actively hostile, and where the government forces were stronger, better organized, and far more dedicated. These conditions made it difficult for the northern IRA to reach the kind of critical mass that they'd been able to achieve in the south during the Anglo-Irish War, which would have been required since the northern IRA was using very similar tactics. However, these failures were not what would cause the northern IRA actions to fail to achieve their goals. Instead, it was the outbreak of fighting in the South in June 1922. This fighting would cut off the flow of supplies and weapons from the South, as Southern leaders chose to pause men and supplies being sent North, and instead focus on their situation in the South. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
In early January 1922, several leaders from the IRA met and established the IRA Executive Council. They confirmed that the army was not under the command of the Dahl and that they only served it voluntarily. This independence would be maintained until after the fighting was over. The first anti-treaty military action would occur in April 1922, when on April 13th, IRA men took over the Four Courts building in Dublin. The hope was that by capturing the Four Courts building, the IRA would be able to demonstrate the failure of the provisional government. They were in some ways successful in this goal, and throughout the spring they would be able to occupy the buildings. They did this on the orders of that IRA executive, and they would theoretically be the leaders of the anti-treaty forces during the Civil War. However, much like during the Anglo-Irish conflict that preceded it, during the Civil War, local military commanders had a lot of autonomy when they were deciding what to do and when to do it. The majority of the strength of the anti-treaty forces were in rural areas, especially in Western Ireland, and in these areas, central control was difficult. It was also in these areas that the anti-treaty units of the IRA were able to take best advantage of the fact that the British forces had been quickly evacuated after the truce. This meant that they left behind barracks and supplies that the IRA units were able to capture and take advantage of. This is just one of the advantages that anti-treaty forces would have in the early stages of the Civil War. The other was experience. The majority of the IRA units would fall on the anti-treaty side of the debate, and the pro-treaty forces that the provisional government would initially have was both outnumbered and made up of men with far less experience than those of the anti-treaty forces. However, on the anti-treaty side, they failed to properly capitalize on the advantages. First, they would be reluctant to go directly into more fighting, and this caused a delay in their actions during the early months of 1922. When the fighting did actually begin in earnest, they were generally unable to coordinate their units which were spread around the country. This indecisiveness and unwillingness to take the next step, especially during the months of April and May, provided the provisional government the time necessary to organize and arm their new provisional army. The provisional army was not without its problems though. It was made up of a mixture of pro-treaty IRA veterans, veterans from the British army, and then completely inexperienced volunteers and it would take time for these forces to be able to be made into any kind of coherent fighting force. Even the veterans would have to find a way to adapt to the new army. The new volunteers obviously had to be trained up from basically nothing, but the old IRA veterans were used to fighting small unit actions with militia units, and not as part of a state-run army. The British army veterans were more comfortable in this kind of environment, but they had to gain the trust of the Irish veterans. While the pro-treaty military leaders were trying to craft this mixture of men into a fighting force, the provisional government was able to take advantage of two things to help strengthen their position. The first was that they were able to pin most of the disorder around the country on anti-treaty forces. The anti-treaty units already had a reputation for looting and forced requisitions, and so the provisional government was able to blame them for the worsening situation around the 26 counties. With so many of the civilians in Ireland very tired of fighting, this caused even more to move into the pro-treaty viewpoints, or to more accurately, the pro-order and pro-peace support which the provisional government seemed to be providing. The provisional government was also able to offer very generous terms to any anti-treaty IRA soldiers who surrendered themselves. All they had to do was sign an oath to not take up arms in the future and then turn over their weapons. This allowed the provisional government to reduce the strength of the anti-treaty forces through political maneuverings, which was critical in the early stages before the provisional army was ready to fight. While the anti-treaty forces were hesitant to dive into real fighting, there were still leaders on both sides trying to avoid a civil war, right up until the very end. 
Both sides were concerned about the views of the people around the country, who had by mid-1922 experienced two years of constant fighting. These views led both sides for a long time to being at least open to discussions, and these would occur primarily between Collins and De Valera. De Valera had by this point moved fully into the anti-treaty camp after having been replaced by Griffith as the leader of the Dáil. Key to these discussions were the push by pro-treaty leaders, including Collins, to put the treaty up for a vote of the people. They were so keen to do this because they knew that they would get a majority of the votes. This made the anti-treaty groups, represented by de Valera, adamant that a vote on the treaty, or a roundabout vote on the treaty, not be held. His preference was to keep the discussions within the leadership. Since the leaders of both the pro- and anti-treaty groups were carryovers from Sinn Féin, de Valera wanted them to work together, just to make sure that Sinn Féin got a large majority of any vote within the country, and then after that they could hash out their differences. They were unable to come to an agreement on this point, and pressure for elections was growing, especially from the British. To the surprise of everyone, on May 20th, Collins and de Valera signed a pact that seemed to be an agreement from both sides that the provisional government, led by Sinn Féin, should continue to hold power. One of the key features of this pact was the agreement that pro-treaty and anti-treaty members of Sinn Féin would not run against each other in the coming election. The hope was that this would prevent the vote from becoming a referendum on the treaty and the constitution. Then, much as de Valera suggested, the Sinn Féin leadership, which would get a majority of the votes, would then work out their differences after the vote was over. This was signed by Collins without having consulted the other political leaders, and it would cause the relationship between Collins and the other leaders, like Griffith, to begin to break down. De Valera hoped that by signing the pact, he would reassert his position as the leader of the anti-treaty Sinn Féin. However, by this point, the anti-treaty group was much diminished in power, and this would lead de Valera to leading a minority group. As it would turn out, the pact between Collins and de Valera mostly just functioned as a way to delay the start of hostilities for a few more months, but it was almost perfectly engineered to not hold lasting value. It was dependent on everyone, the leaderships on both sides of Sinn Féin, to agree to the constitution that was being written, and given the divergence in viewpoints by this stage on critical issues that were facing the new country, that agreement was almost certainly never going to happen. While all of these discussions were ongoing, in the background the new constitution of Ireland was being written. It would take three months worth of work within the committee created for the purpose of drafting it, and it would be reworked several times. The committee had been told to not overly concern themselves with the exact requirements for the constitution as laid down by the treaty with the British, instead they should just focus on properly setting up a new Irish Republic. Now this resulted in the elimination of the oath to the British crown, the removal of the British judiciary as an avenue for repeals, and the omission of any discussion about the crown's executive authority. The goal of the Republican leaders was to prevent this treaty, unamended and unchanged, to the Irish voters before the election. This, in the pro-treaty leaders' minds, would allow the voters to properly understand the best possible outcome of the treaty, hopefully leading to them getting more support. If less palatable alterations had to be made to the Constitution later, that was a problem for later. In London, when they found out about the details of the treaty, Lloyd George... Uh, let's call it he was less than pleased. 
The British government told Griffith and Collins that they believed the new constitution had six major issues when it came to needing to comply with the agreements made in the treaty. These six items included many of the things I mentioned earlier. The removal of the oath, no, ju no judicial powers in London, no actual power for the British government, and no official recognition of Northern Ireland. These problems would not be fixed by the time of the elections, but they did prevent the Constitution from being published until the day before the elections on June 15th. There was some debate at the time and after about how much the publication of the Constitution altered the course of these elections. Many would claim that the people did not have time to read and understand the draft, while others said that the basic outlines of the, of the Constitution changed many votes to be pro-treaty. The election would prove that there was a large majority for the pro-treaty members of the government. The pro-treaty members of Sinn Féin would receive 58 seats, and the anti-treaty just 36. Critically, anti-treaty candidates would not win a single seat in a contested district, with both a pro- and anti-treaty candidate on the ballot. Remember, many constituencies did not have both sides on the ballot due to that Collins and De Valera agreement. The final 34 seats were split amongst three smaller parties and independents. After the votes were tallied, with the pro-treaty side able to easily form a majority in the new doll without any of the anti-treaty members, the anti-treaty members would begin a policy of abstention, and the civil war appeared imminent. After the results of the election, British leaders could generally feel a little bit of relief, but then Sir Henry Wilson was assassinated. Sir Henry Wilson, former chief of the Imperial General Staff, had played a leading role in British efforts during the Anglo-Irish War, and this caused two IRA members, Reginald Dunn and Joseph O'Sullivan, to assassinate him on his doorstep on June 22nd. Two IRA members then shot two policemen in their attempted escape before they were captured. They were sentenced to death, and they would be executed just a few weeks later. It isn't exactly clear why the two men were there and why they killed Wilson at this time. Some stories have them there under the direct orders of Collins, who they had served with in the IRB before and during the First World War. However, Collins' involvement is disputed. In the immediate aftermath of the assassination, British leaders began to put heavy pressure on the provisional government to bring the anti-treaty members of the IRA under control, and they suggested by starting with those that were occupying the Four Courts area. This pressure, along with a general desire not to see relations with the British deteriorate any further, would prompt the provisional government into action, and it would finally plunge Ireland into the depths of civil war. Yeah.